Hi there. Welcome to Journey On. I'm Dave Smelser. So I was sharing with a friend recently that as best as I can discern, God seems to have given me a quirky marching order for my days. One that on the surface seems charming and relieving, maybe even a little bit shallow. But it's also been as challenging a spiritual task as I've ever had, and one that's led me into all sorts of unexpected growth. That marching order is that all will be well for me each day for all the uncertainties in my life if I pull off one thing, to enjoy my day. For me at least, it turns out that enjoying my day, rather than being a simple choice, is more like a skill set. And a lot of these skills I've needed to develop from a standing start. But I'm liking where this is headed. So today, in that spirit, we'll talk about some very practical life skills about how to succeed. But in the spirit of my apparent marching orders, we'll look at some classic mid-20th century advice about the skills we need to master if we're going to succeed. Advice we might associate with boomers or maybe their parents, the so-called builders. It's good heartland post-Great Depression and post-war advice. And then we'll look at the same question from the perspective of the great spiritual masters who come at it from quite a different direction, almost a different worldview. But one of the selling points of the second perspective is that we're told it ups the chances of enjoying our days, while taking the other mid-20th century advice wholesale runs the risk of making us perhaps less happy than we wish we were for all the perfectly defensible wisdom each of their points has on its own. We'll touch on things like how we know who we really are and how to figure out when we shouldn't take no for an answer from the universe but keep fighting and when, by contrast, we should just flow into an entirely new opportunity. And, of course, I'll tell plenty of stories along the way. This really does turn out to be a whole way of looking at the world. I think you're going to be really intrigued. Before we roll, I'll mention that if you like the sort of journeying spirituality we talk about here, You might really enjoy a weekly online group I host around these things with folks from around the country and beyond. It's on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. We're hoping to start a second group, which would temper the time just a bit for folks from either coast, and the group is a lot of fun. Email mail at blueoceanfaith.org for more information. As with all podcasts, if you like Journey On, one way you can play your part is by giving it a good rating and a brief review on iTunes so others can more easily find and connect to what's here. Hey, thanks. And we have an email list you can connect with if you don't want to miss anything. You can sign up for that at blueoceanfaith.org slash connect, and then click join the list and go from there. Okay, kick us off, Ryan Hood, with Wisdom About Success. A good friend of mine is developmentally disabled, and he's been a little discouraged about that recently. He'd had some dreams since he was a young man, which he now freely admits are probably immature dreams. I mean, basically along the lines of how boys might talk about being an astronaut or playing in the NFL. But nonetheless, he's still feeling disappointed that they haven't happened. And he's also had setbacks along the way to other possibly hopeful futures. And his disability absolutely makes his path harder. He had another one of those disappointments recently, and he was pretty down afterwards. What is his hope, he was asking. Now, along the way, he's had some real encouragements. He's had a job that, yes, he doesn't love, but where he's made some genuine professional strides. And he recently seems to have found love and is hopeful for where that might lead. But still, he's been a little down, and we recently got together to commiserate. And as we talked together about how he might find success that felt like success to him, I found myself thinking about two very different models of how to address that question. Both of the models are taught by spiritual people, 
but from pretty different perspectives. One of these I learned about when I pastored a thriving ascendant church in Cambridge, Massachusetts for 15 years. We were a young bunch. The average age of the congregation when I started was 28, and the average age when I left was 28. It hadn't changed. Maybe it goes with being in a university town. And I also was young and ambitious, so that seemed like a good fit. And so I had a regular rhythm of teaching about work and success, which seemed of the age range that we were dealing with. Of course, I would mind Bible passages, many in Proverbs in these sermons, and I got really familiar with how people were teaching about how to succeed at work. It was in my interest to know what was out there that people felt helped by. Often, the popular teachers were conservative Christians. Two that come to mind are John Maxwell and his friend with the whimsical name of Zig Ziglar. And I entirely enjoyed learning from them and others and passing on whatever I could, along with exploring a Bible take on their thoughts. But with a small amount of remove, I've realized a few things that seem worth at least noting. First, let me just say, it's not that any piece of their advice, at least the ones that I taught, is a problem. As you'll see in a moment, each point makes plenty of sense on its own. But I've realized that the spiritual masters we talk about here come at this from a very different perspective, with really different upshots, so that seems interesting. And I realized that absolutely the advice of these men, always men in the ones I was reading, whose worldview was so shaped by the Depression and then the post-war world, like all advice, comes from a perspective that perhaps was unconscious for them, but which might work best for people from their gender and their class and their era and their race and so on. And their advice as a package hit like a gut punch to my developmentally disabled friend. While happily, the advice from the spiritual masters actually seems quite promising for him. So let's take a look. While not claiming to speak for Mr. Maxwell or Ziegler in this, let me give a teaser of the type of advice the folks I was reading in that era would give. And let me reemphasize, there's nothing bad about any of it. Uh, More, it's that there might be more to say than this. So the sort of mid-century American success advice would be things like, deserve success by doing the hard work to get there. Or keep a perpetually positive attitude, that it's a positive attitude that draws success to you. Or constantly improve. Yes, you might achieve something, but if you don't keep improving, you're going to fall back behind. Or persistently do the next thing. There are whole books with titles like this, like execution as the good thing to do. Doing the next thing is what's important. Or keep your health in mind. Exercise, sleep, eating right, stuff like that. Or continually improve your people skills because you're always going to be working with people if you're going to succeed at anything. Or learn from failure and move forward. One catchy phrase along these lines that I enjoyed talking about in my young ascendant church was try fast, fail fast, evaluate fast, try again fast. So that's the spirit of it. Again, have I said this? It's all great stuff. There's nothing wrong with any of those points, and one or more of those might end up being the best thing you get out of this podcast. But that sort of advice, I will say, discouraged my friend. They made him feel like a loser. All this stuff he had to unyieldingly do, or he could expect to watch other non-disabled people rocket past him. And now that I thought about it, as I really sat with the package of that sort of teaching, maybe it felt discouraging to me a little bit too. I have certainly done a lot of hard work, but is there any chance I would be in some even more successful place if I just worked even harder? And my health, I mean, my exercise was all right, I guess, as was my sleep and diet, you know, comb see, comb saw. Looking back, had I in fact taken all the right lessons from failure and cheerfully pulled myself up each time and quickly tried something new? 
well, you know, uh, sort of. I mean, it wasn't a foreign concept, and I could point to things that argued that direction in my past. And frankly, whatever it was in my life that I was at my absolute best with these success choices, whenever that time was, had the life they brought been especially happy. So now, let's take a glance at what some of the great contemplative masters would teach about succeeding. They use some different metaphors to create a pretty different picture. Some of them, for instance, are big on water metaphors. Jesus and others in the Bible use one of these called living water. What I'd always thought about living water was that it was this great gift you could hope for through Jesus that might end up being God's Holy Spirit. So this mystical so-called water was something that would refresh you like water when you mystically drank it and would just keep accomplishing things that made your life better after this initial drinking. So it was about us making the wise choice to drink this water through Jesus or whatever. But the mystics suggest that we might consider another take on this metaphor. So look at the water talk, say, at the start of Revelation chapter 22. I'll read it to you. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, seems like a Jesus figure, in the middle of its street in this great heavenly city. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So in this passage, there's actually no talk about us drinking God's water, but it does nourish really great stuff like the tree of life we see right at the beginning of the Bible that occurs here, which gets made fertile and fruitful by the water that's talked about here. So the mystics ask us, what if just here we think of ourselves not as drinking God's awesome water, but as flowing along with it as described here? Maybe we're on a boat on this great water. Or maybe in this metaphor, we are the water. What would that be like? I mean, it's a pretty hopeful picture here. As we flow by, we see at least two amazing trees of life on each side of the river. And this great water we're a part of makes those trees fruitful to the point that they heal the nations, like they provide all the good things that everyone in the world needs. So with that picture in our hearts, let me suggest a very brief look at some of the success teachings from the spiritual masters that have been striking me. In this spirit, you might phrase the first one, flow like water. The encouragement of this as a success strategy is that water is close to unstoppable, I suppose unless you make a really great dam. But mostly, as obstacles come up, water runs around them. With time, water could even erode under any obstacle. Water is definitionally fluid and also powerful. It's not rigid. The rigid parts of us would instead be the obstacles the water flows around. You might wonder why it takes spiritual masters, though, to give us this advice. I mean, a big part of pop culture advice is go with the flow. You don't need a monk to teach us that. I wonder if some of the meat of this, though, is that the cost of flowing like water in our life is that it constantly prods us to let our transitional identities go. While they teach us that there's an identity we by no means let go, which I'll get to in a moment, letting these identities of the moment go is a real thing. I've mentioned on the other Journey On episodes that my youthful dream was to be a storyteller of some sort, maybe a screenwriter or a novelist or a playwright. As I mentioned, I did give that last one a whirl for many years. After one setback there, my wife Grace and I got a casual offer to move from our house in San Francisco to Cambridge to help start this new church. The idea was that I could continue with my playwright stuff. A friend whom I'd connected with about this was moving to New York. So I could try to commute to see if my plays might take root in that big theater hub. So Grace and I flowed like water after the setback and gave this a try. 
But this other friend of ours, who was going to be the pastor of this new church, didn't end up wanting to do it after a couple of years of pre-work. And our group came to me and said, if we were going to have a church, I would have to pastor it because there was no one else willing to do it. It would mean I'd need to put the brakes on my theater hopes, likely until the church failed, which would no doubt happen quite soon. I did have a play, which was getting at least preliminary interest from some noteworthy people, but that nonetheless is what I did, thinking that I'd just get the church up and running and then return to my real identity being a playwright all too soon. But the church did well enough that I wasn't able to come up for breath for a decade or so, by which time my theater contacts were long gone. So I I went with the flow, but I'd gone from playwright, my preferred identity, to pastor, which was an entirely new thought. Now, doing that had a lot of obvious upside in the spirit of the mystic's points. But that upside came at a real cost of letting go of some of how I defined myself. Here's why this contemplative success advice seemed like it might be helpful and encouraging to my developmentally disabled friend in a way that the older boomer advice couldn't be. On the one hand, it very quickly hit on the nub of the matter for him. He'd had some of those youthful dreams for a long time. However improbable they might be, he liked holding out hope that maybe against all odds they might happen. And if he flowed like water right past them and onto the unknown part of the river in front of him, frankly, that felt like a death. But like what had happened to me, the death of one self-image allowed for some promising, unexpected, even unasked for new good things that were in fact around the riverbend, things that felt a little tree of life and healing of the nations-ish. Maybe if I could flow like water with God, I'd be surprised at the good things coming into my view. And I could look at my friend's life and feel like this was happening. Yes, that childhood door sadly firmly closed. But his response to that opened up a job with a lot of unexpected perks. He was wondering at one point if he was going to relocate in order to pursue his dream. But not long after he didn't move, he found love. This has ties to a contemplative point we looked at a few weeks back about how these great spiritual teachers warned us against this thing they called clinging, where we look back, say, to some nice situation we've had in the past and find our present reality lacking. So maybe we liked our friend circle more in some previous time and are wondering when we can again have friends like those. That would be clinging in the sense they're against. They recommend a daily practice of meditation or centering prayer. The Trappist monks giving the most concrete and, yes, ambitious counsel say to shoot for 20 minutes of this daily, and better yet, to do it twice a day. But they say it's most important that we do this at whatever length we can each day. After our session, we might take another moment to ask God or ourselves, is there anything I'm clinging to? If we sense an answer, they encourage us to ask God's help to joyfully let that thing go and see what happens. So flowing like water helps us notice transitional identities we're clinging to. Maybe playwright was that for me. These teachers celebrate how useful it is to notice and let go of those identities as we joyfully keep our eye on what's in front of us on the river. I was chatting about this with some friends this week, and one said, okay, so great. I love this. But when exactly do you know that you should quit clinging to an identity, and when should you stand firm and fight for the identity? I mean, we're in Los Angeles, where lots of people have moved in pursuit of a hard dream to get. Would flowing like water mean that if they get rejected, as is certain, they should just look to where the river is taking them next and leave the dream behind that has been driving them their whole life thus far? As is my response to any deep question, my answer was, gee, I don't know. But I wonder if the next bits of success advice from the contemplatives might help with this. So the second thing they suggest is find your true self through contemplative prayer. 
Thomas Merton was the modern contemplative who most notably was a cheerleader for how key this was. The risk of flowing like water without this in mind is that it can seem entirely passive. But the promise is that as we do this contemplatively before God, we get this gift of discovering who we really are beneath the layers. And then that sort of creates an oar we use as we flow like water. It's the thing that our flowing like living water helps us discover. But the trick again is that plenty of other identities will surface as being the thing we are. So if we don't keep our eye on this, we're going to get thrown off the scent. So is being a playwright my true self? Or is it a transitional identity that's going to weigh me down if I cling to it? For my developmentally disabled friend, are his childhood disappointments a loss of his true self, which with God he needs to gently hold on to? Or are they something meant to be transitional that he'd be served by letting go of as he flows like water, as painful as that might feel in the moment? One way the Bible touches on this is when it talks about our inmost being, something way deep in us that God shines light on. So Psalm 139 talks about how God searches us and can know us because he created our inmost being. Or Proverbs 20, which quirkily says, the human spirit is the lamp of the Lord that sheds light on one's inmost being. The human spirit is the lamp of the Lord that sheds light on one's inmost being. So the mechanism here is sort of confusing. The human spirit is the lamp of the Lord. What exactly is that? But nonetheless, this tells us at the very least that God is eager to take us to our true self if we agree to it. Merton's point was that it takes a contemplative commitment to get there. Next, be joyfully, enthusiastically present to whatever you're doing. Be joyfully, enthusiastically present to whatever you're doing. Some podcasts back, we talked about this Carmelite friar of a few centuries back named Brother Lawrence. He was so inspiring about both learning a continual conversation with God and also becoming a contemplative. And his job at his monastery was to be kitchen help. When people would come to learn the great mystical stuff that had drawn them from all around Europe to get his teaching, they would discover him in the kitchen and wonder what he was doing. And he'd say, I'm washing dishes. My spiritual practice at the moment is to be alive to washing dishes. One friend I was talking with about this particularly felt inspired this direction uh, while raising young kids to be joyfully, enthusiastically present to that. A scripture these teachers would point to would be Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. This came to mind in response to my friend's deep question about how any dreamer could know when they were clinging in the bad way and instead should flow like water and when they should hang in there and keep focus on their dream. I think the classic American advice, right, is never give up on your dream. And whatever our dream might be, we do have role models, of course, of some people who achieved that dream. So surely some person in history has done something close to whatever we've dreamed of doing. It's the American dream. Now, I did, in fact, do a whole podcast on dreams in Journey On. But just to say here that flowing like water can feel like it's against the whole culture. But I wonder if this point helps. If pursuing our dream we can joyfully and enthusiastically be present to what we're doing in eagerness to see what God has in store for us, then I think we're golden, both as Americans and as mystics. It's a nice fail-safe. But if not, maybe that's a sign that we're clinging when we should be flowing. If we can't be joyfully and enthusiastically present to what we're doing in the moment, maybe that's a sign we're clinging when we should be flowing. The spiritual master's next bit of counsel gives some context to the other ones. Trust what's on the other side. Trust what's on the other side. We talked about trust quite a bit in the last Journey On podcast. 
The biblical idea here is that we're looking to God to reward whatever we do, that God can be counted on for it, but that we need God to do that if it's going to work. Even the Colossians verse that I just quoted continues, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. Flowing like water as a success strategy is meant to help us experience more of God than we could reasonably have hoped for, if often at the small cost of losing our earlier sense about how things should work in our lives. Doors closed for my friend, and he has a lifetime as a disabled man to have experienced things like that, so there's an understandable flinch response. But he quickly flowed into some promising things that made me wonder what God will do next for him. To be sure, those good things aren't answering the exact questions he'd wanted answered. But they are offering some opportunities he hadn't known to hope for. And I think that's in the exact spirit of this view of the world. Even as he learns to be still, to let transitional identities go, and more and more to discover his true self. Looking to grow and thrive and achieve some dreams in our work life or in however we spend our days is sort of horrifying. The stakes can seem so immense, not least for our self-image, but also for our earning power on behalf of ourselves and maybe others. And it forces us to reassess our picture of what kind of life is being offered to us. Are we being somehow cosmically ripped off? I think my developmentally disabled friend asked that question. A recent movie I liked, which I realize won't be everyone's cup of tea, as with all movies from this director, is Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. If you're the sort of person who would like the movie, you've probably already seen it. And if you're the sort of person who stays away from Tarantino movies, I will not talk you out of that choice. But among the many things I liked about it was the Brad Pitt character, whom some reviewers have called Zen, which I think they mean in just this sense. He cheerfully flows like water into whatever's next. And he's learned how to let go of transitional identities along the way, while seemingly getting stronger and stronger in who he really is, his true inner self with each step. A big part of the character's charm is he so knows who he is, even while working a humble job, while his nominally successful boss is a mass of insecurities. So today, if you take some time for spiritual stillness, maybe right after we're done here, if you take a few minutes to meditate, again, you'll want to follow your breath. And when your thoughts start to take you somewhere else, gently notice that and let them go as you return to your breath. You might enjoy adding in the element that gets meditation called centering prayer, which involves asking God for a so-called sacred word that you can use to bring you back to your breath whenever you notice your thoughts taking you away from this. The Trappists say this is usually a one or two syllable word like God or maybe Jesus or love or whatever. And then they encourage you to keep it a secret between you and God. So perhaps right after we're done here, you take a few minutes for meditation or centering prayer. Just before you're done, check in on if any feelings have come up around whatever success feels like or doesn't feel like for you and however you spend your days. I mentioned that after summarizing some of the classic 20th century American advice on succeeding, I felt a little worse about myself. Rather than shoving that feeling down, I observed how it felt from the safe space of this kind of quiet prayer. Oh, I would observe, that's me feeling like a loser. And I would gently acknowledge that, maybe even welcome that, rather than try to shove it away. Welcome me feeling like a loser. By doing this, rather than leaving me feeling vaguely bad for the rest of the day, it sort of dissipated it. It sort of helped me laugh and turn over my day again to flowing like water. That said, you might notice in your stillness that the very practical advice from our mid-20th century teachers is the best thing you take from the podcast. That's also worth noting. Well, that's it for this week's Journey On. Again, consider checking out this related Wednesday evening online group. Email mail, M-A-I-L, at blueoceanfaith.org to get the scoop. Hey, it's been great having you. See you next time. Mm -hmm.